0: Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers Festival. The Long and Winding Way to the Top was recorded at the 2018 festival. Andrew P Street speaks to Felicity Biggins about the 50 or so songs that made Australia. So I have been reading Andrew P Street for years, um, mostly his time as a music journalist for New NME, Rolling Stone, Time Out, The Guardian, and others. Um, he's also written a couple of political books. The short and excruciatingly embarrassing reign of Captain Abbott, <laughs> and the curious story of Malcolm Turnbull, the incredible shrinking man in the top hat. So we need the to get on those. Completely
1: non-partisan books. books has, to yes. be, has to be said. Very middle, you straight down the middle. You can
0: the title that you're yeah. ba- balanced.
1: Me, me and Andrew Bertrand. Bolt we're like that.
0: Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so I was interested to hear that, and I'll be going back to those books now, but this particular book we're talking about today, The Long and Winding Road to the Top, 50 or so songs that made Australia, uh, with a little, um, you know, what's the word, promotion on the top by Jimmy Barnes. So he's got all the right people <laughs> saying it's a great read. Um, the first and obvious question, Andrew, is what possessed you to attempt <laughs> to define... 50 or so songs that made australia because i reckon we'll all have a different 50
1: believe that if there's one thing that social media has taught me since the book comes out everybody has a different uh, a different list um it it sort of felt like it was going to be a, a reasonably uh, straightforward palate cleanser after writing the other books because you know there was a lot of research and some of it like particularly when you're writing about things like offshore detention it gets extremely grim so i was like it would be nice to write a book about something that I love, uh, something where I can be unambiguously proud of Australia again, <laughs> like actually sort of you know, celebrate rather than criticise. <laughs> and um, and I, I idiotically thought it was going to be a lot easier than it turned out to be because sort of when I first pitched it to my publishers. Um, they were like, oh, well, you know, can you... Can you put a list together? And I was like, Yeah, yes, yeah, easy, easy, no problem. And the first list I came up with was 240, uh, 278 songs, I think it was. And then when I sort of started consulting sort of other other music writer friends and, and just sort of people generally, and like, so what songs would you put in? It it came up to close to a thousand, and I was just there going, I. Like, really made a terrible mistake here. This is this is not gonna be as easy as it was. And the list changed. Like mm. literally I think the there's one chapter that was written four days before I sent off the, the final manuscript. Mm. And what, it was Do you
0: remember what song that was?
1: Or? Uh it was Get Free by the Vines.
0: Right. It yeah. was
1: that was the the absolute last one to go in and it replaced um uh, not Pretty Enough by Casey Chambers. <gasps> okay. So, yeah, I know. See, this is a sort of hard decision. Right. I feel bad about it, too.
0: <laughs> well, we, we, perhaps we should address the elephant in the room, which is the gender imbalance mm. in your book. Um, there are very few female artists in there, Andrew.
1: There are. There There are, well... Yeah, it's, it's nowhere near parity. So, in that in that sense, I feel like it accurately represents
0: what was <laughs> Australian music.
1: Um, th- I mean, uh, there's a chapter on Sia, there's a chapter on Helen Reddy, there's a chapter on Kylie. Of course. Kylie. Um, Kylie's up in there twice because mm. she's also in there with Nick Cave. Um, there's the Divinals with the immortal and sadly actually very mortal Chrissie Amphlet. Um, Doree Me, I'm trying to think what
0: else. Yeah, the, the, yeah that's, that's about it
1: yeah it's it, it there are some real issues of representation in the book, and I talk about that in the book as well the just the fact that it is predominantly white dudes with guitars, which is also kind of what music has been in Australia um, up until relatively recently um, and that is definitely changing and it certainly changes towards the end of the book as well. I mean, there's, also, there's very few queer artists in there. There's, um, there's nowhere near enough. I could have written an entire book on um, sort of indigenous rock and roll, which Clinton well, Walker largely someone has. I did write a
0: book on you know, black, art, black female artists in Australia yeah, that and was, got into a whole yeah, heap of trouble for it.
1: also Clinton Walker. <laughs> yeah, so um, but his book, Buried Country, on, on um, Aboriginal country
0: artists is amazing. Is it's it? just extraordinary. So book. someone's doing that that mm. for you anyway. <laughs> but you did actually say at one point, I am writing this thing and I can determine my own criteria. <laughs> so this was in justifying the inclusion of Crowded House in a book about Australia bands because is Crowded House technically an Australian band and you you argue well, I think, that it is. Mm. But also is claimed by New Zealand, oh, of, of course. Oh, of course.
1: It's, it's an incredibly arbitrary distinction.
0: Yes. So, <laughs> of course. But what, w- what were your criteria
1: then? Uh, I determined pretty early on that the earliest I was going to go was The Wild One by Johnny O'Keefe. That's the number one song, because I felt that was a really good kind of year zero to start with. It was sort of where Australian rock and roll began. It's where music kind of is, uh, as being a movement for youth and for Australian identity I think began, so that was, that kind of got me out of a little bit of a hole of where to start from because obviously there was a lot of music before that, I mean, and as a result, you know, Slim Dusty is referenced a few times but there's no chapter for him, uh, which is again something about which I do not feel comfortable, (laughs) I should (laughs) make clear. i tried to have a spread of genres, although there are a lot of genres that are, again, like there's, there's no really heavy music in there. Like there's no Parkway Drive or, um, I'm trying to think of anybody else that would be potentially <laughs> significant enough if it was heavy. I mean, it's ACDC. I mean, I guess yeah. that's technically, that's rock. Of course. Chisel.
0: You couldn't not have ACDC. No, Chisel,
1: no. Well, especially since I'm cribbing them for the title. That would be very rude.
0: That's right. That's <laughs> right.
1: Um, <laughs> So, and I, and I try to have a spread of eras as well, because there, there's a couple of kind of clumps of, as, as I discovered when I was putting this together, of really, really fertile periods of music in Australia. And there was one kind of in the, in the early to, the, to late 70s, there's another one in the, sort of the early 80s, and there was one in the early 90s, where it's just a real explosion of not just great music, because there's great music in every era, but just really... Almost progressive music, I guess, where, where where suddenly something would happen in the culture, and and the music would 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 push that along, and you sort of saw that in the in the way that um, uh, what's a good example, like in the, in the early '80s, where you suddenly get you know the Go Betweens uh, releasing *Cattle and Cane* at the same time as Men at Work* releasing *Down Under*. At the same time, the In are breaking through, at the same time, the Midnight Oil are breaking through, and it's just like so many big things all happen at once. And, and so the, a lot of the things that I l- ended up leaving out were not because they were not significant, but because I already had like three songs from 1984 or something like that. Yeah. So, so there was a lot of... I, I had to make up a lot of very
0: arbitrary r- rules
1: just to make this manageable.
0: It must have been great fun researching it. So how did you go about gathering the material? It was so much fun. Uh,
1: Well, I mean, a lot of this... uh, I've been a music journalist for... Wow, 25 years now? Jesus. Um, So a lot of this stuff was just things I had rattling around in my brain or things in sort of yellowing cutouts from street press from many, many years ago. And... um, and there was an awful lot of sort of using this as an excuse to go back and listen to, you know, the Triffords or something and just be like, no, 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 I'm doing research. Research, that's what <laughs> I'm doing. You know, and um, a lot of buying records and going, no, nope, but research, I can claim this all back. Beautiful. Of
0: course, on um, your massive royalties. On my
1: huge royalties. <laughs> you face so much Exactly. You, you, I tell you what, you, you want to make money, get into the writing game. I tell you. <laughs> You make a mozza. <laughs> um, yeah, As you can see from my, you know, fancy and expensive clothing.
0: Yeah, but you've had a great you know, festooned
1: time. Festooned in jewellery.
0: You've had, a, you've had, a, you've had the keys to the kingdom. You see, you've been able to go and.
1: Uh, well, this is true. It was, with all
0: these great. It was pasts. very,
1: it was very fun, and it was, it was nice. To, um, it was kind of a, a, also a bit of an excuse to to talk to a few of my heroes as well, like to sort of reach out and say. You know, there's. Yeah, it's never not thrilling to get an email from like Tim Rogers, and no. you know, when you're sort of, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's like no, no, matter how mundane the question is, he's like hey, Tim Rogers. Um, so it was. So there was a lot of that, and it was. It was just. It, it was fun to do. the The only complicating factor really with it was that. Um, by the, time the sort of, uh, by the time the book was actually commissioned and we had a sort of really clear idea of what it was, was about th- three weeks before my first child was born. And because I'd never had a kid before, I was just like, well, babies sleep most of the time. How hard can it be? <laughs> so a lot of it was written one-handed at three in the morning with a child under my arm. And <laughs> I'm just thinking, one of us is going to fall asleep eventually. <laughs>
0: Well, that's it very never rock and ever. roll, Andrew. Very it was. And so, yeah, you know,
1: lots, lots of, lots of <laughs> late nights, just, uh, yeah, just hanging out with a three-month-old.
0: <laughs> well, I will be coming to the, some of the songs in a moment, but I, something that struck me about when I was reading the book was the role of the producer mm. in all of the songs play such an important part, but we often don't really think about the producer unless mm. they're big names.
1: No, that's absolutely true, and and it's it's interesting for a lot of the, the for a lot of the songs that, that are in the book. It's it's almost more the producer's work than the um, than the artists. I mean, the uh, I mean the, the the classic example is the Real Thing by Russell, Russell Morris, Morris yeah. with, which was the song was written by Johnny Young, which is in itself weird. But the um, but it was produced by Molly Meldrum. And he had kind of gotten it into his head that he wanted to have this big Beatlesy production. Like, he, he really wanted to make it his own, like, I Am the Walrus. Um, except that he didn't really know how a studio worked and he didn't have anything approaching the budget that the Beatles had. And so a lot of the sound of that record is somebody who doesn't really know what they're doing trying to do something that far out you know their ambitions far outstrip the the resources and the result is this really like amazing sounding record uh, it doesn't really sound like i'm the walrus but it sounds amazing and you know when you, when you think of of that song a lot of a lot of what's great about it is that kind of swirling phased psychedelic effect like you know particularly like the 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 effect on the vocals on the ma <laughs> it and that's, you know, essentially Molly Meldrum going, like, mm, I don't know, <laughs> that, which is kind of amazing. And, and there's a lot of, um, and uh, like when I was digging into it, two, two of my, uh, two songs that had actually been re- released before, um, one as a B-side and one on, on an EP, and were wildly different to the versions that everybody knows, were Down Under and Man Overboard, or, uh, men, yes. men at Work and Dory Where when you listen to the original of Down Under, which was a B side to a, a song called, um, oh, I can't even remember now, was it was oh. the independent debut single, this is terrible. It's, it's all in this book. <laughs> um, uh, key Punch Operator, something like that. It, it's this kind of, like very loose jazzy reggae song and it's, it's, lo- it's much, much slower, it doesn't have the kind of call and response thing, with the, the flute. Um, it, it's, all, it's all very one note as far as the, the vocal line goes because you know, it doesn't have those sort of jumps from, from starting very low and then fin- you know, the last verse is, is sort of right at the top of Colin Hayes' range. And so all of those dynamics, they were brought in by the producer who was just like, okay, here, here's what we're going to do. And it was the same with Do Re Mi, that, that kind of the original of Man Overboard is this frantic punk song. And then when, when they took it into the studio with, um, I think it was Gavin McKillop, he was like, okay, we are slowing this down. It's going to be at a walking pace. It's going to be, like, we, we're, it's all going to be based around the bass line. It's not going to be this sort of frantic guitars. And, um, and that sort of gave the space for all of those amazing sounds and, and for you to actually hear Deb Conway's lyrics, which are extraordinary. And for her to, to give that vocal performance, I mean, again, it's one of those songs that when you think about it, it, it it's, it's Deb Conway's voice that pops immediately into your, into your your head. And in the original, that's lost in this real frantic sort of just trying to get all these syllables out as quickly as possible. So it's um the way that, that that sort of that, that extra set of years of a producer can turn a perfectly okay song into an absolute masterpiece. It, it's, it is massively underrated and it was pivotal to so many of the songs in this.
0: Yeah, well I think the whole uh, the book t- reminds me of something I've already known is that every great song is a, a bit of a miracle and many of these songs nearly didn't happen mm. and that's what's so fascinating about it so that's why we should probably come to the songs now. And I do yes. apologise if the songs you hear today aren't the ones you were hoping that we might talk about, but there's 50 and we can only talk about a few. And so I picked out the ones that I thought had the most interesting stories and often didn't get, nearly didn't get made at all. So um, there is another woman in the book that we didn't mention Judas Durham. Judas Durham, yes. So Ryan, we'll hear a little bit of The Carnival is Over, please. <laughs> Goodbye. is over. And it's a beautiful song and I defy anyone to sing it without crying at the end because the lyrics just get to you. Story behind that.
1: Well, the, the weird thing, the, the, the weird, well, in my opinion, the, the weirdest thing about that is that it's actually based on a Russian folk tune about a um, military commander killing a prisoner of war. So it's, which it seems like a weird basis for a deeply romantic song about yearning. <laughs> But, um, and the lyrics were were written by Tom Springfield, who's um, Dusty Springfield's brother, and whose real name is Dionysus. And I do not understand why if you're, you're you're christened Dionysus, you wouldn't demand everybody call you that all the time. But, um, but yeah, it was, was like, I I mean, it was before my time, but the thing about The Seekers that I found increasingly weird as I was sort of researching, was when it just dawned on me that they're the closest thing Australia has ever had to a Beatles. Like, they were like, that, that record is still one of the biggest selling records of all time. It was shifting close to 100,000 copies a day at one point. Um, and the fact that there are not statues of the seekers everywhere, I think, is... Uh, Testaments are just how. What's what I'm looking for that isn't going to sound really prejudicial. Um, nice, the they are.
0: Oh, I thought you were thinking that we, you were going to say something about us. Why we well, don't recognise the seekers? But yeah, they were they they were yeah, sort they were of were... derided for being nice.
1: Mm, and th- I mean, this is actually a problem that they. Um, with the, the, the jukebox musical Georgie Girl that came out a, a few years ago. Um, the writers, were, I read an interview with the, um, with the librettist who was saying it, it was so difficult to come up with a plot because, like with most bands, there's drama and there's intrigue and, you know, there's, there's internal battles and then there's an acrimonious split and there's, you know, there's an, a good narrative you can follow. Whereas with The Seekers, they got together, they made some records and then Judith said I'm going solo and they went, OK it was just like, the, they're like, we don't have a plot here. And um, so I think they ended up largely cribbing the plot from Georgie Girl <laughs> to, uh, to sort of make up for the fact that the band were just a bunch of perfectly nice people who got along
0: fine. Yeah, a bit like ABBA, except I guess not really at all like ABBA, but... No. You know what I mean? The, the, the I don't songs think there was
1: quite as much, like, internal... The songs are very... ..in, yeah. uh, in The Seekers. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the songs are very ABBA. singable songs, I, I guess. Indeed. That's the thing. Indeed. Um, like,
1: if you were making a Fleetwood Mac musical, you would really... Ju- the, you'd be working out what to leave out, whereas I, I feel like yeah. with The Seekers, they were probably going like... I don't, do you want to have a bit where they fight robots or something? I don't, you know. We
0: but also her voice—it's just, it's just it, magical. It's bell-like, I, I
1: believe Richard well, Feidler described it as
0: bell-like. Well, having lambasted you for not having women, I've, I've got another woman <laughs> coming oh, on next. No. Um, I am woman. You can sing along.
1: Yeah.
0: I didn't have a mic to play I, have to, I can do anything. I am strong, strong. I am invincible. Invincible. I am woman. Thanks, Ryan. So, I am woman Helen Reddy.
1: We, uh, it, it's legitimately amazing that a song written 40 years ago now, well, more than that, sorry, well, close to 50 years ago, has stood up so well because I mean, when you think about a lot of sort of other, quote unquote, socially aware songs of the time, there's a lot of them that, when you listen back now, it's like, Ugh. like Melting Pot. If you if like if you listen to that now, it's just like, ooh, there's a lot of terms in this that wait, no, no. But you know, I am woman. I mean, Reddy was singing that at the Women's March after Trump's inauguration, and you know, it's 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 as horribly pertinent now as it it was when it came out. Um, And it's amazing because Reddy wasn't a songwriter either. At that point she had not written a song. And it was... And Iron Woman was only written because she had had an unexpected hit with um, I Don't Know How to Love Him. Mm -hmm. And a record company sort of went like, okay, well we need to put out an album now while, while you're hot. And she didn't have enough songs. And so she... Just sort of, the the le- legend has it she was she was kind of went to bed with just this one phrase of like I am strong, I am invincible, I am woman, sort of circling around her head, and basically woke up the next morning and wrote the whole thing more or less in one hit, sort of as a poem, and it was um, it, it it was not a hit when it first came out either. Like it it was it was an album track, it wasn't even a single, it was just kind of uh, I, I think it might have even been track nine on on the album. And um, there's a, if, if anybody has read uh, Robert Forster from the Go Betweens' magnificent collection of essays, the uh, the Ten Rules of Rock and Roll. One of those rules is that the second last song on an album is always the worst. Oh. And um, <laughs> it, and it wasn't until she was approached for a terrible like sex comedy who. Um, I think it was, like, they were called Stand Up and Be Counted or something like that, and they needed a theme, and they thought "I Am Woman would be a good theme for this. And the song wasn't quite long enough, and so she had to add an extra verse, so that last verse was, was not on the original version, and they re-recorded it, and they ended up not really using it for the film, and the film was a flop in any case, but after that, and after particularly an, an appearance where she sang the song very heavily pregnant on American television, it just took off, and it became this anthemic... Song of 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 empowerment at a time when, you know, obviously uh, that kind of second wave of feminism was really taking root in the U.S. and and things like Ms. Magazine had just started being published, and it was it was just like the perfect song for the for the time, and um, yeah, as I say, it's still it's still anthemic now. It's still such a powerful song, and it's just weird that again, it's one of those songs that that wouldn't have happened had it not been for a very specific set of circumstances.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so many of the songs are like mm. that. So while we're in the 70s, that? Um, that brings us... To, of course, we can't not recognise Skyhooks living in the 70s. And I tried to get my vinyl to bring in and show you the <laughs> cover, but I couldn't find it um, among all the vinyl. The song you've picked out, why in that particular song from Skyhooks? Because it could have been any number.
1: It... it Um, It was mainly because of the historical significance of of You Just Like Me Because I'm Good in Bed. Because, I mean, one of the things about living in the 70s is that almost every song got released as a single. It was just this ubiquitous album at the time. Um, But one of of the the things about that song in particular that kind of gives it added uh, significance in, in, in Australia is that it was the... Uh, it was the first song that Double J ever played when when um, what what is now Triple J start, started broadcasting, and it was such a fuck you to the censors because at the time the song was banned, and so this was this whole sort of like we're a youth station, we're going to show you fuddy daddies, what's what, and so they yeah they 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 kicked off with playing <laughs> playing <laughs> a banned song all about doing it, and um, and. Which I think gives, the, gives what is otherwise, I have to confess, a pretty slight song, um, I, I think, a lot more, more weight.
0: Let's, let's decide if it's slight or not, <laughs> shall we? You dislike me because I'm good in bed, Ryan? Because I'm good in bed. Complex You just like me because
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm good in bed. Yeah, <laughs> in? Just like so you just like
0: me because I can't be seen. You just like me because I'm good in bed. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, uh, Skyhooks also brought all that kind of theatricality.
1: They did. I mean, and, and there were other bands doing, doing that. I mean, Split Ends was sort of uh, you know, doing a similar thing at the time as well. But the. Um, the the real one of the reasons why that wasn't my initial choice for for skyhooks is because I, I felt like one of the one of the things that they were among the first bands to do certainly the first sort of popular mainstream bands to do was really specifically write about australia because up until that point you know th- there's never been any shortage of songs about london or songs about new york or songs about nashville or songs about chicago or you know songs about paris but I think there was kind of a cultural cringe, there still is, in in Australia about writing about ourselves. And and so you would even have Australian bands name-checking London more readily than they would name-check Melbourne. And Skyhooks were the first sort of band to specifically talk about cult, mm. or spe- you know, specifically reference streets and venues and identities from their neighbourhood. Um, which i think really paved the way for writers like paul kelly to to write very very specifically and very explicitly about the australian experience rather than kind of pretend that they were chicago bluesmen
0: yeah well i like think that. that's a really good thing to remember about skyhooks mm, they were that they did pioneering. use those melbourne suburbs and 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 suddenly so some someone like um coming out of school as I was in the 70s was able to really go wow that's I recognize those things
1: mm. and and it's and it's one of those things that I think is important to remember because there there's I think when whenever you're talking about representation in in art uh, it, it's something which again not to get terribly political but a lot of the right wing kind of commentary i get very funny about like so well how come the star wars films have now got asian and black people in them <laughs> and it's it's that thing of it really it makes such a difference to see your own experience represented in in art and when you think of of the way that you know, like even even just hearing you know suburbs on you like one of the reasons I moved to Sydney was because so many of the bands I loved had made it seem so romantic and, you know, when you listen to a lot of, say, Smudge or, uh, actually the Lemonheads, um, It's a shame About Ray album is is essentially a love letter to Newtown. And so when I was there and I'm like, you know, I'm walking down King Street. Which I've got to say, if you've ever walked down King Street in Newtown, not as exotic as you think it's going to (laughs) be. But you know, if you've listened to a lot of
0: oh, the Whitlams.
1: Yeah, well, the Whitlams are a great example, or um, or John Kennedy. Like um, when I first moved to Marrickville, I was just singing "Miracle in Marrickville" every time I walked to the shops, which is still a magnificent song. But um, and it's that sort of, and I always try to keep that in mind whenever I, I you know, an, an artist like Troy Sivan comes out. And like literally comes out like he when when he was um, sixteen he did a YouTube video sort of announcing that he was gay, and just how important it is for say you know young queer people to be able to see somebody and go like oh okay that that's my experience that's that's what I'm going through, and this guy seems to you know, he's he's doing okay so it, it's that the. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a theme in the book, the, the way that Australia became more and more comfortable with its with its Australianness. from... At the very beginning, we were so... A lot of our music was trying to be British and trying to be American, and as time went on, we kind of developed our own our own that sound was, and our own representation.
0: It was very all. much the 70s, if you think about the sports and Dave Warner from the suburbs and all mm. those bands that were so... Gigging all the time mm, in the 70s. Ted Mulry. And they all came to Newcastle. Um, mm. Men at work as well, um, when they were very new, came to Newcastle. Yeah, Ted Mulry. Mm. Uh, in fact, we should pay some homage, I think, to your, your title. So we've got It's a Long Way to the Top mm. in the book, <laughs> of course, and Down Under. So um, It's a Long Way to the Top. Yeah. Again, another story well, of complexity.
1: One of the one of the weird things again, I feel like I'm starting everything
0: with one of the weird <laughs> things
1: about this song. Um, it's it's a song that ACDT have never played it since uh the passing of Von Scott. And there are a lot of mm-hmm. theories as to why. Um the, the predominant one is that uh it's out of respect, that you know it was his signature song, and it would be rude for them to perform it. And there's another theory, which is that um, everybody would have to tune their guitars up one step to be in tune with bagpipes and no one can be fucked doing that. <laughs> so it's... Um, because apparently this was a big issue when they were gigging because Bond would play his bagpipes during the song.
0: Well, um, that's a theme in the book, bag, how often bagpipes appear in there
1: songs. There are a lot of bagpipes yeah. in Australian rock and no one can... Un- and it's, it's pretty much all down to the long way to the top. Like, that's, that's why...
0: But didn't he learn the bagpipes so he, he could play...
1: Well, well, that's, on stage. The, well, that's the, the, beautiful, the beautiful story about that was... Um, so George Young from the Easy Beats was producing the song and he was like, kind of needs something. And, of course, the Youngs were Scots and, um, and Bon Scott's family was Scottish as well. And they kind of got into this conversation about pipe bands and, and Bon sort of said, well, you know, I used to be in a pipe band. And George was like, great! So, you know, can you put a bagpipe part down? And he was like, shh. Sure. Now the thing is, he wasn't a bagpiper in the pipe band, he was a drummer. So, but because he was Bon Scott, he was just like, all right, went out, got some bagpipes and learned how to play them so he could do that, do that incredible bagpipe part in the middle of the song.
0: Do we want to hear a bit of It's a Long Way to the Top? Yeah? <laughs> it's a Long Way to the Top. Thank you, Ryan. great Australian idiom, it's a long way to the shop if you want a sausage roll. It's true. It must always be remembered, I
1: think. This is true. I, I, I'm also a big fan of the Doug Anthony All-Stars. Uh, it's a long way to the top if you live in Mount Isa. <laughs> um,
0: and do they never really, have never played it since Bond Scott no. died? Seriously? Yeah. Wow, I didn't realise. Yeah,
1: and it's, um, it's, it's also just, I, I really I mean, one of the things that I hope people get from the book um, is I feel like whenever you read a, a book on music, if if at the end of it you don't want to immediately go and listen to everything, then then the author has has failed miserably. Of all of the songs in the book, I really recommend going back and listening on headphones to Long Way to the Top, because um, you when you listen to it really carefully, you develop such. A profound respect for the work of of the late great Malcolm Young, who of course passed away last year, mm-hmm. and it was something which I mean, obviously, I've, you know, I've heard the song thousands of times, but um, after Malcolm's passing, I was doing a, a feature on him uh, for Australian Guitar magazine, and I was, in the course of that, I was interviewing Lindsay McDougall, uh, as in the Doctor from Triple J. He's, actually, he's uh, now on Wollongong uh, ABC, and. And he was talking about how you know he's he's the guitarist in Friends of Rome as well, and he had been uh, trying to work out how to play that rhythm part because on when you just kind of listen to it in your head, it's just like da 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 da. It's 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 easy. It's just it's holding an a an a chord. But he was like, when you try to play it, he subtly changes it every few times, and it just and it builds and builds and builds and builds. And it's one of the reasons why the song doesn't get dull despite the fact that it is mainly one chord is because there's these tiny little variations that he puts in and it just builds the song and it just builds in this tension. And he's just like, he, he, he was the master of how to play rhythm guitar because, you know, typically it's the dullest part of any song. And, and it's also, it's one of those, for a, for a band so well known for Angus Young's like absolutely histrionic guitar solos, like Angus is very tasteful in this song. Like it's just there's really just that kind of, yeah. You know, there's just a couple of licks. There's you know the call and response with the bagpipes, but there's you know, like there's no big solo. There's just there's there's a bit where there's like a one eight bar uh, section where it just sort of throws throws in some riffs at the at the end of each uh, end of each phrase, and that's it. Like there's you know there's none there's no big like thunderstruck. Sort of mad solo, so it, it really is just this showcase of what a rock solid band they were, and which is amazing because that lineup had only existed about four months before they recorded. Really? They'd only just gotten the rhythm section. Bond had only been in the band really like less than a year at that point as well. So the fact that they locked so quickly, and I mean, they rehearsed like madmen as well. They were really just workhorses. Yeah. That. And by that stage, also, they'd all been in enough bands that they knew what to get rid of. I mean, that's, a, that's always been, I think, ACDC's great strength is efficiency. There is nothing in there that's, that's unnecessary. And more, more than, I think, any other song, Long Way to the Top is just like the, the er rock song. It's like if, if you were trying to explain to Martians how, to, how, rocks, how rock works, it's like, yeah, there we go. Just study that. We should have put that on the gold disc that went out on Voyager. Frankly, that's. that's
0: <laughs> so another sort of uh, iconic song, of, of course, for Australia is "Men It Works Down Under" mm. for all sorts of reasons, and I think everyone's probably aware of the, the plagiarism case that mm. that followed that. But there's quite a good story behind that one too, how uh, that came to be.
1: Again, it's it's a. It, it was kind of written as a joke originally, um, but the lyrics—I'm sure, like once, once again, when you kind of listen listen to the lyrics, I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a song which I think all of us are familiar with. It's kind it it, it hadn't dawned on me until very, I, I, you know I'd I'd, I'd, he- I'd heard it as a child, and I just thought like, okay, it's the song about. Living in Australia, ha, 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 One, I didn't pick how many drug references there are in it, which is hysterically funny. And um, second, that it's basically the story of Australian colonialism. Like, it, it's this really sort of brutal song about Australia's place and its bloody history, which is pretty subversive for a perky little bouncy
0: song all well, about the, the... video, I think another thing that we haven't really touched on yet is the role of the mm. music video in all of these songs as well. And I think the music video for that one really stood out. I can mm. still remember it.
1: And and I think that, that helped sort of hide how dark the lyrics yes. are. Because, you know, it's wacky guys playing in the... Corona, uh, uh, the uh,
0: Walking up sand, a sand dune. Yeah,
1: yeah. down at uh, Cronulla. And the... Um, and, and it... I mean, that was really, again, it's one of those things where the, the circumstances under which it was released were, were very, in, were just extremely fortuitous. They were making video clips at a time when bands didn't necessarily do that, and just in time for MTV to launch in the US. And the story goes that when, you know, for the first few months of MTV, they only had, literally had 30 videos. <laughs> And so, so they just kept
0: playing. Them. Yeah, so,
1: so Minute Works, uh, so Down Under just got thrashed and thrashed and thrashed. Also, um, who, who can it be now? And that's what made them stars in the US was suddenly people were hearing the song 50 times a day and then it just, you know, like oh once man. it gets into your head
0: yeah. with that flute
1: riff. I'm, Let's get uh, it and into our I'm sorry, our heads. that plagiarism case was bullshit. Um,
0: well, we can come to that in a sec. Let's have a little bit of Down Under. Have you got Down Under up there, Ryan? I on a hippie trail head full of zombies. I met a strange lady. She made me nervous. She took me in and gave me breakfast. And she said, Do you come from a land down under? A woman who. Run, that Thanks. That's quite enough of that one. Um,
1: yeah, the the you the, say? the plagiarism case was uh, for if you're not aware, the, the publishers of Cookabara, um, uh, as in Cookabara sits in the old gum tree, successfully sued Men at Work for the flute riff being that melody line. Um, and there are a couple of problems with this. One is it's not, which I feel should have been more emphasized in the court case. The other one was that it cost both sides something like $4 million to fight this case. Mm -hmm. And the upshot was that uh, the publishers got a cut of the royalties, I think, from 2006 onwards, which came to around about $40,000. So, it was devastating for the band, but also the publishers lost vast amounts of money fighting this pointless fucking case. Mm. Um, it, it inarguably contributed, if not, nece- if not directly caused, um, the passing of Greg Ham, the man who played the, f- the flute riff. He was, you know, he, he was in, in a dark place.
0: Anyway. Anyway,
1: okay. there was yeah. substance issues. I think his, his marriage had broken down as well. Um, but yeah, he passed away, um, sort of by his own hand during that uh, that period. And Colin Hay, the singer of Men at Work, uh, is still—he's
0: never really got over it. Has no, he?
1: he's—I no. l- mean, yeah, they were, they were friends since school. They were, yeah. You know, I mean, it was a horror. The whole situation was horrible, but also, it—it it, it was just so. Aside from anything else the people who owned the rights to the song had only bought it like, relatively recently as well. I think it was in 2006, which is why that was the start date. So it's not like this was the writer asserting their, no. their sort of moral rights or anything like that. It was somebody with an asset going, we can make some money off of this, and being horribly wrong, but causing nothing but devastation by mm. doing it. it was, and it's a really grim footnote to an amazing song.
0: It is a grim footnote, unlike your footnotes, which are very funny.
1: Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: Nice segue. Yeah, nice segue. Actually, I was going to read a little tiny bit of... um, I forgot to do that at the start, just to give you a sort of an idea of the style Andrew writes in, because it is actually very funny. And This was a a couple of paragraphs he wrote about the seekers. So he goes, Even so, it's hard to get away from the fact that the seekers were so uncool that they never even became cool by virtue of not ever trying to be cool. They posed for photos in sensible knitwear. They kept their hair short and tidy, as though concerned that they might have to go into work the next day. And they sang close harmony folk songs that would shock and horrify absolutely no one's parents. For freak's sake, their debut single was a cover of Wall Sing Matilda. As a representation of Australia under Robert Menzies, they were perfect, sexless, unthreatening. And Snowy White. So that's the kind of writing you, you you get about everything. It's great. It's really good stuff. So let's go on now to another unfavourite song of mine, <laughs> which has kind of patriotic connotations that were never fully intended, True Blue. Mm. So tell us about that.
1: Well, True Blue, the John Williamson's song, it was... Um, well, I, I find it fascinating because, of course, like, country music, historically, in in the US and, and, and in Australia, of all the genres of music, is probably the most jingoistic. It tends to be, you know, the most sort of, you know, celebrating the man of the land. And Williamson, you know, wrote this song, which was ostensibly a celebration of Australia. I mean, it's, it's, un- it's unambiguously a celebration of Australia. But it's a really questioning one. I mean, it, it's it's the only kind of you know sing-along patriotic song that I can think of, where almost every line questions what what is Australian identity. You know, it, it just raises question after question after question. I mean, that's the whole you know you know is it me and you as a mum and dad? Is it a kangaroo? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That you know just go, goes through you know these sort of you know I I iconic symbols and qualities and so forth. And then at the end just goes, you know, and I, I'm asking you. Like, and, and it's, a, it's a very clever song for what was essentially a, um, well, it was used, used largely for an advertising campaign. And it was also intended uh, as the theme song for a, a, a programme um, that John Singleton was was putting together, that never never came to light, but which was called something like True Blue Aussie Battlers, and it was just going to be these you know stories of, of, I assume, kelpies that could drive Utes. I mean, with a <laughs> name like that, so it, so again, it, it it was a song that came about through a very specific chain of circumstances, and then because it got used for the Australian-made advertising campaign. Um, yeah, again, it was just on television all the time, all the time, all the time, and it just bled into the Australian consciousness. And, yeah, as I say, it's a cleverer song than it appears.
0: Well, let's and have a little listen to a little bit of True Blue. Have we got True Blue? Maybe we don't have True Blue.
1: Oh, um, no, I think, I, think, I think so. Oh, we do. No. Here it is now. Here it
0: is now.
1: Hey, True Blue. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so Don't say you've gone
1: Well, I think that kind of sells it as well like as
0: Say you've as. knocked
1: off for a smoker And you'll be back later on Hey, true blue Hey, true blue Give it to me straight Face to face
0: Are you really disappearing? Just another
1: dying race. Hey, true blue. Yeah,
0: really? Thanks, Ryan. I guess that's what happens when songs get appropriated by advertisers. And that's why a lot of artists don't let that happen.
1: Mm. And he has, since then, he's been extremely protective of, of the song. And it's it's interesting. I mean, he he has. There's something which I, I said in the book, and then events kind of contradicted it. But like um, like Jimmy Barnes and like John Farnham, uh, sort of far right groups have since tried to appropriate True Blue. Like it wasn't the Australian <laughs> Patriots, but it was some other moron group of racists. And um, and all three of those artists came down so hard on any attempt to use the song for, you know, apart from the fact that they're just, you know, John Williamson is not a horrible bigot and therefore would rather horrible bigots did not use his music. But also, you know, it's just he, he considers it a, a very sacred song to, to him. He, he feels like it was, a, it was a watershed moment in his own writing, but it was also, you know, it's a song that means a lot that this has become a lot bigger than his own, uh, than it just being one, of, like he, he feels like it doesn't belong to him necessarily, it belongs to Australia, which is something actually Red Gum also said of, uh, or John Schumann said about I Was Only 19, he, he said that you know it's turned into a secular hymn, which I thought was a very um, astute description, mm-hmm. and I think it also applies to True Blue.
0: And I think John Williamson has suffered a similar fate to The Seekers in a way. He's actually incredibly popular.
1: Yeah, and he's, he, and he's,
0: and he's released a, a ridiculous lovely amount yeah.
1: of, of music as well. Yeah. I mean, they, there's... I mean, say, say what you will about Australian country artists, my God, they don't mess around. No. I mean, he's he, At the time of writing, he'd, re, he'd released something like 50 albums. And a lot of those were compilations and live things and re-recordings and stuff like that. But even so... Um, and I think he's done another two cents. So, you know, I mean, that, that's getting to slim, dusty levels mm. of every 20 minutes I'm going to put out a record.
0: And um, We need a statue. We do. We do. It's time to recognise him. We're going to run sin. out of I've time. I've just John
1: Williams, i fighting slim, dusty.
0: <laughs> I, will, I will jump down um, my list to Silverchair because we can't well, let the opportunity go to talk about Silverchair. <laughs> and um, I still have a vivid memory of seeing Silverchair as, as sort of sullen teenage boys being told to stop playing at the Cooks Hill Fair. <laughs> <laughs> I still can remember this sullen blonde boy pulling out his amplifying plug, and, and I had no idea that was Daniel Johns, of course, mm. but they, <laughs> they were so young.
1: They were, they were like 14, 15. So when young they, when
0: they actually wrote Tomorrow. Mm. So tell us about Tomorrow.
1: Well, it, it, I, I feel literally like I'm bringing coals to Newcastle with this. This is—I uh, I don't doubt that everybody in this room has got a, a, a better Silverchair s- story than I do. But the 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 real sort of gravitas of that song, like, the, well, the, the the impact of that song, I should say, um, was that were it, was it not for what happened with Silverchair? Um, I think Australian music would look very, 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 very different now. And the biggest thing was that there was a, they legendarily won a talent quest. And the, the talent quest was, was called uh, Nomad. It was a joint thing between the ABC and SBS. Um, there was no, Nomad was a sort of music and culture program on SBS. And Silverchair won that and they got their this song uh, professionally recorded and they shot a video clip and that song was Tomorrow. So b- because it had been sort of... By the time it actually came out, Nomad was no more, and, but, but it still got a lot of airplay. Uh, the Video got screened a lot on SBS and, a- and the ABC, and Triple J really got behind uh, playing Tomorrow. And that directly led... Like the, the fact that that absolutely blew up directly led to the ABC going, well, we need to do something like that we, you know, if if we, since Nomad no longer exists, we need to do our own thing, and that was Unearthed, and Unearthed has, you know, been so pivotal to everything that has happened in really the last 15, 20 years now of Australian music. It's discovered so many artists. It's now its own radio station. Essentially, the way that new artists get played on Triple J is by starting on the digital station Unearthed. If it gets... Enough play, enough downloads there, then it kind of gets moved up the, uh, to the Triple J playlist, and that's really all down to Silverchair. Because mm-hmm. like with most of those, those kind of, I mean, how how many other bands can you think of that that became worldwide superstars on the basis of a talent quest? There's there's really not that many. I mean, even when you when we talk about Australian Idol in there. But even the idols haven't had that great a, no. a, strike, a, a strike rate. And again, actually, as I say in the book, uh, the story of Australian Idol is it's much better to come second. Yes.
0: Um, <laughs> Same like, all, with all of them. Almost all
1: of the, 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 the runners up have much, much better careers than the winners.
0: we'll, we'll have a little bit of silver chair, I think.
1: Can't make them out. with
0: <laughs> finish with um, John Farnham because you and I'm sure you all know the extraordinary story of his comeback but it is mm. an amazing story
1: it is and I'll, I, I know because whispering time, we'll,
0: Jack and all of that well we've got five minutes and then we'll play a little bit at beautiful.
1: the beautiful well yeah I mean the like I was kind of aware of this but I didn't realize how fraught things were In John Farnham's career, just before Whispering Jack, I mean, he was essentially bankrupt, and he was his career had fallen over. He didn't have a record deal. Uh, He'd just come out of this period uh, with little, uh, replacing Glenn Sharrock in Little River Band, where he, which had ended very badly, and nobody gave a shit about him. Like nobody at all in the industry gave two fucks about. About John Farnham, and both he and his manager had mortgaged their houses to a "if this doesn't work, we're going to be homeless" level to fund this record, which was being recorded independently. Um, they were gathering songs from from all over the place, and legend the, the legend of You're the Voice is that it was it was written um, by. Four writers in the, in the UK who had met at a um, at like a writing session put together by their publishers, and one of those was a guy called um, Andy Quanta, who was a, a keyboard player who had just joined Icehouse. So Andy was back in in Australia and just had this cassette li- you, of this song, that this demo that he that he'd been part of writing, and um, Somebody from, uh, from Glenn Wheatley's office happened to be at the studio when... I think ourselves were doing Measure for Measure, if I remember correctly, um, and sort of casually mentioned in the course of a conversation, like, oh, you know, we're doing this, looking for songs for John Farnham, and Andy just went, oh, well, do you want to have a listen to this? And so, again, it w- it was that, that thing of, had they not collided, it wouldn't have happened. And the other thing is the... Um, the, the main writer of the song initially didn't give permission for John Jugfuck to do it um, and had to be really talked around. Yeah. But the...
0: Um, I bet he's glad he did now. He's
1: very glad. It, um, <laughs> it, it should also be pointed out that in the original demo there was this big fretless bass solo. Um, you can still hear it online and it's the worst thing you've ever heard. Oh, really? Um, because it is a fretless bass solo. And oh, when they were... There, there are two things about the actual recording which I love. One is that they needed something to replace the terrible fretless bass solo, and John Varnum said, bagpipes, long way long way to the top, let's just do bagpipes. And they were like... Mm. <laughs> um, the other thing is that that, that whoop sound, you know, like, like when you... We'll hear the song in a sec, but, but that sort of big like whoop that happens sort of at the beginning of every bar, that is a recording... Of Glenn Wheatley slamming his Porsche door shut,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> of course. Because Glenn Wheatley, even in financial peril, was tooling around in a goddamn Porsche. <laughs> of course. And of course. And when the song was first, when, when they were releasing the song, um, because there was such a prejudice against John Farnham at the time, it was issued with no details to um, to radio stations. They just gave gave them literally an, an acetate. On seven inch of the song, and they didn't put the artist on there just just to, so that people would listen to it without without prejudice, of, without prejudice mm. in a very George Michael sort of a way. <laughs> yes, um, but even so, the the thing that 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 turned it around was John performing it live on Hey Hey It's Saturday, that, and again it just put it into everybody's. Um, Into everybody's faces in a way that because radio still would not touch it because it was John Farnham and he was the Sadie the cleaning lady guy.
0: Exactly. Well, yeah. And then then
1: it did quite well.
0: It did quite well. And um, on that note, we are going to um, thank Andrew very much for coming along today. So we could thank him in the usual way. Thank you. That's great. Take it away, Ryan, and we'll just have a little listen, and then we'll probably have to go, won't we? We're we're probably out of time. But thanks very much for coming, and have a bit of a sing and
1: enjoy the the Porsche sound.
0: The Porsche <laughs> sound. The we'll listen out for the Porsche sound. A bit more bold. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2018 Newcastle Writers Festival. Join us in 2019 from April 5 to 7 and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.